Hi, I'm Rob Meyer. I'm the founding executive editor of Heatmap News, and you are listening to Shift Key, a new podcast about climate change and the shift away from fossil fuels from Heatmap. My co-host, Jesse Jenkins, will join us in a second and we'll get on with the show. But first, a word from our sponsor. Elevate your energy strategy with next-generation energy storage solutions from Core Power. From CNI businesses reducing energy costs and targeting peak performance to utility-scale projects that are redefining industry standards, Core Power stacks innovation with reliability and safety. Visit corepower.com, K-O-R-E power.com, to explore Core Power's capability and start a conversation about unlocking your energy potential. Core power. The future of clean energy is here. Clean energy is ready now, but our laws are not. Advanced Energy United is on a mission to achieve 100% clean energy in America. They're working to remove policy roadblocks for businesses that provide all forms of clean energy and transportation solutions. And they're in states across the country and on Capitol Hill to create better opportunities for all. Learn more at advancedenergyunited.org slash heatmap. Hello, welcome to ShiftKey. I'm Robinson Meyer, the founding executive editor of Heatmap News. At this point, it's pretty clear that within a few decades from now, we are going to need to be removing billions of tons of carbon dioxide per year from the atmosphere. Now, when I think about that and when artists illustrate that, I think we often think about kind of big, massive direct air capture or DAC facilities dotting the landscape, that this is what this endeavor will look like. Giant facilities with pipelines and fans and like cooling tower-like situations that will line the Gulf Coast, that will be in industrial areas that kind of collectively undo the damage that we have done to the planet's climate by using electricity to suck carbon dioxide out of the air, by using electricity and chemicals and industrial expertise to like suck carbon out of the ambient air. But our guest today says maybe we shouldn't think about factories at all, or at least not think about them in isolation. Maybe we should think instead about rocks, because there is another technique, another way of doing carbon removal called enhanced rock weathering, and it's recently got a lot of attention. Our guest today is Dr. Jane Flegel. She is market development and policy lead at Frontier, and she's the former senior director of decarbonization at the White House under President Joe Biden. Now, Frontier, as many of you know, is a consortium of companies, including Stripe and Alphabet and Meta, that have come together to spend nearly a billion dollars on new and experimental forms of carbon removal. They specialize in what's called an advanced market commitment. They are kind of the buyers of first resort, almost the operation warp speed, but from the private sector, for carbon removal. And they recently committed $57 million, which is more than Frontier has ever spent on a single purchase to do enhanced rock weathering with Lithos, a San Francisco-based startup that specializes in spreading crushed basalt on farmlands and then measuring it. Frontier expects that this purchase, this $57 million purchase, will remove 154,000 tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, more than any previous purchase has done. And in the process of making and overseeing and researching this purchase, Jane has become, as she puts it, 
rock-pilled. And I think she's here today to rock-pill us. So, Jane, welcome to the show. Let's get into it. What an honor and a privilege, guys. We couldn't think of a better first guest to big, invite. Um, big fan of the show. Jane the Rock Flagel is here on Shift Key this week to talk to us about carbon dioxide removal, enhanced rock weathering, rocks, CDR, and more. Um, Jane, I think the best way to start would be for you to just kind of situate us. I know you work at Frontier, which is part of Stripe. Maybe not everyone knows, listening to the podcast, knows exactly what Frontier is. Can you just situate us like... What do you do day to day? <laughs> what a great question. Um, so I work for Frontier, which is the world's first advanced market commitment to purchase highly durable carbon removal. Um, and we now have more than a billion dollars that we're going to deploy within this decade um, to get carbon removal on its best possible trajectory. So um, I spend a lot of time both thinking about our purchasing strategy and the policy implications of our purchasing strategy. So which pathways and which projects should we be the early customers for? Um, and what are the policy needs and um, barriers that those companies are facing? And then also over the longer term, how do we catalyze the policy and political change we need to ensure that carbon removal exists at a gigaton scale to help the world achieve its climate objectives by mid-century. Um, and can you just, what were you doing before Frontier? How do you even wind up in the position of like thinking about carbon removal all day? Yeah, really weird. I have like a weird winding story on this front. So I, after college, actually worked at the Bipartisan Policy Center, which is a think tank in D.C. Um, and this was right in the wake of the collapse of Waxman-Markey, so sort of a depressing moment to be working on climate action. Um, but at the time, the Bipartisan Policy Center had a big project on what they were then calling climate remediation, which was both carbon dioxide removal and solar geoengineering. And this was in 2010. So this was like eight years before the IPCC report that acknowledged the need for CDR. So I've been carbon removal adjacent, carbon removal curious since 2010 or so. I've done some quick mental math. And I want to ask you about the most powerful man in Washington. Um, were you at Bipartisan Policy Center at the same time as Jerome Powell? Oh, not only was I, but we shared a cubicle. Um, I'm sure he. I'm sure he, he won't a recall. With Jerome Powell. Yeah, yeah, I did. Wow. I, in fact, I did. And and might I say, the nicest office mate I've ever had. <laughs> uh, I do think this is the kind of incredible openness uh, of American democracy. Is like someone truly can go from having to share an office at the bipartisan policy center, a distinguished institution, having to where they're having to where there are many shift key <laughs> listeners, as far as I know. But you can go from sharing a cubicle at the bipartisan policy center to setting with literally someone, macro, yeah, with someone a year out of college. Yeah, with to setting macro financial policy in a decade, it's possible. That's American democracy for you. I, I want to move to the topic in a second, but I just want to get one more thing kind of down for folks as we go into this discussion about this about rocks. Um, <laughs> advanced an, an advanced market commitment, like what is that? <laughs> what what is that? Yes, I would say I yeah. have. Well, yeah. What is an advanced market commitment? What does yeah. that actually mean? Yes. Yes. What a good question. So uh, let's let's think about the function we're trying to actually um, uh, 
address or enable here, which is to say that for many important technologies that the world needs, whether it's vaccines for certain kinds of diseases or clean cement or concrete or clean chemicals or carbon removal, um, you know, there's lots of tools that societies have to accelerate innovation and accelerate the development of those technologies, right? R&D grants, like R&D conducted in-house at companies, demonstration funding, tax credits, all of this stuff. Um, but what we know about innovation is that very often does it proceed linearly from R&D to demonstration to deployment. In fact, market pull or demand pull often catalyzes innovation in a way that very few things can do. So the, the idea of an advanced market commitment is to send a really loud demand signal to a field and basically say, like, hey, innovators, entrepreneurs, scientists with really good ideas, it is worth your time, effort, and capital to pursue this line of inquiry because there will be a customer. Um, and the advantage, uh, one of the advantages of an advanced market commitment is you can basically, as an early customer, write the criteria-based specs for the product you want to buy. Um, and, and so kind of, you know, allow innovators to then look at what these criteria are and within that context develop solutions that meet the desires of a customer. Um, and so that's that's what this is. So there's a billion dollars at the end of the day. We then invite companies to apply um, for this billion dollars um, of revenue, essentially. Um, and we say, okay, like, what is the cost of your carbon removal per ton? What is the what is the potential capacity of your approach? What are the environmental justice implications of your approach? Like, look at all of the criteria that Frontier has laid out, um, and if you meet those criteria and we're excited, we will sign a long-term, like multi-year, multi-million dollar offtake agreement with you to be your customer. Um, it, it's a little bit like the military buying a new ship or something like that, right? You've got a set of requirements for, you know, aircraft or a ship or, a, you know, other other military procurement. And you're going to the market and saying, this is what we want. And yeah. companies are coming forward and saying, I think I can meet those requirements. Um, and if if you agree, uh, you, you know, agree to purchase their, their product in the future. But that money hasn't really changed hands yet. We right? don't it's pay. We pay on. Yeah, we pay on delivery. So unlike like a grant or something where you're paying upfront in most cases, we say like we will not buy, we will not pay until you deliver, which is I think, you know, lots of people from climate finance world find this exciting um for 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 economic reasons. I find it exciting as a tool for accelerating responsible innovation. Not so not just for accelerating innovation, but but shaping it. Because if you're a if you're the big or the first customer for these companies, you have a lot of leverage and you get to define the criteria they have to meet um, at the highest level. And then in the contract, you get to set the terms for sort of like here's what we think delivery is. I mean basically I think the, the for me the backstory here is I feel like you called me in November. <laughs> thrilled about rocks L rock thrilled about enhanced jane the rock flagel now <laughs> thrilled about thrilled about rocks like thrilled about enhanced rock weathering in a way that i feel like i have not heard you but also <laughs> i have not heard people generally excited about a cdr approach can you just start what is enhanced rock weathering and why are you so excited about it 
Yes. And there are a few things that I find as invigorating as rocks these days. Again, I think <laughs> it's important to note that Frontier is deeply committed to kind of an all hands on deck approach here. Like the world needs a full full portfolio of highly durable carbon removal options to get to gigaton capacity. But we think enhanced rock weathering is one important part of the portfolio. So enhanced weathering is a carbon removal process that speeds up a natural process, which is weathering of alkaline materials. And so weathering happens naturally. It actually drives what makes the earth habitable in the first place. It just happens over very, very long periods. So essentially what happens is that rocks slowly erode when they come into contact with acid rain, essentially. Um, and Like naturally uh, acidic rain. Yeah, yeah, not like acid rain the way we think of it. Like rain yeah. that is acidic because it has some dissolved CO2. <laughs> um, and so that acidic rainwater interacts with rocks and erodes them, and it results in CO2 being stored either as a solid carbonate or as a bicarbonate. Um, so that happens naturally, again, on very long time periods. So enhanced... I want to interrupt before we go any further. What then happens, right, is that the CO2 winds up being dissolved as a bicarbonate. It goes into the ocean. Into the ocean. And then what? It's turn. What happens? Sinks it and it into? becomes part of the Earth's crust. Right. Or it gets turned into a shell and then yeah. like a, a creature's shell and then it sinks again. Right? It is and like you- functionally stable. Like it yeah. is thermodynamically pretty much impossible to reverse. <laughs> and you kind of said this, but I do want to like draw it out. This is the carbon cycle. This is a central earth science process. There's nothing fancy yeah, the, about this. The, the problem is it takes centuries to play out. Uh, it's just moving on geologic time. But, but actually, this like, idea of enhanced weathering means we can potentially speed that up, right? And, and, yeah. and that's actually, and that's actually, sorry, I just want to like, yeah. I, sorry, I don't mean, th- this is like the whole problem of climate change, right? Like, I don't yes, want to be right. too, <laughs> like, the problem of climate change is that we take fossil fuels and, and, carbon that's stored in geological storage out of the ground on like historic timescales, like on decadal, you know, like every year we take millions of tons of it out of the ground. And then it would only be restored back to the ground by this extremely slow process. Like that yeah. is... It is the like heart of climate one, change. As one a way, problem. yeah. And one way to think about carbon removal is like taking stuff out of the fast cycle and putting it into the slow cycle, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 essentially, you either like inject CO two underground where it's where it's stable, or you turn it into salt. Like these are the <laughs> it's not these are kind of the options. Um, and so um, enhanced weathering, to, to exactly this point, it's enhanced for a reason, right? There's regular old weathering, and then there's the enhanced kind, which aims to speed up this process that typically takes millennia to years or days by either like using more reactive materials than the normal rocks that would just weather naturally or increasing the surface area of the material that is exposed to CO2. So grinding up rocks into like very, very fine, fine powder Um, or and or exposing that material to more favorable environments. So the rate at which rocks weather can vary pretty widely based on a bunch of variables, including like moisture content and temperature. So it tends to happen more quickly in like warm tropical climates, for example. Um, So that's what enhanced rock weathering is. And maybe I should say, I suspect we'll mostly talk about field weathering today, but there are like a couple of sub pathways that I think it's worth calling out. And part of the reason I want to mention this is 
Um, we have, of course, sign off takes with direct air capture companies. I have done a lot of work on direct air capture. We're very excited about that pathway. I think there has been an unfortunate collapsing of the aperture in the policy context on carbon removal to like take all things that we would consider durable carbon removal and assume it's all DAC, which is it is not. Um, yep. There are a wide range of things, all with different attributes and potential and risks and potential failure modes and cost profiles. So like you, we have, we have to do the best, our best to widen the aperture there. Um, a good example is like 45 Q, the big tax credit for direct air capture, $180 a ton in the IRA only for direct air capture. So like, yeah, you beat me to it. That was going to yeah. be an example I was going to use too. It's a I, classic. I there's, there's a half a dozen ways to do carbon removal. The only one we support is using energy intensive chemical processes to pull CO2 directly out of the atmosphere yeah. and then store it geologically or try to use it for something else. Um, and, 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 and that may be one of the scalable options that we need at large scale in the future, which is why I think there's been a lot of focus on it. And there's so many different ways to try to do uh, direct air capture, but uh, there's biomass, you know, uh, derived pathways as well, where we're using plants to do the carbon removal for us. And then there's this enhanced uh, weathering process where we're using the geologic processes and trying to speed those up. And I just want to maybe just describe like what this looks like a little bit more for folks. Yeah, like, yeah, it sounds yeah. a little esoteric, but so as I understand it, I mean, the basic process is let's take a silicate rock like basalt or olivine or some other minerals. And we're going to crush them rock. Up. I'm uh, not a PhD. It's I'm like a volcanic, like a like think yeah. just think about like a volcanic call. rock. Think about like think about volcanic rocks, like okay, big, yeah, yeah, yeah. So basalt <laughs> is like one of the most common ones. It's like comes from from lava flows, right? Um, and uh, and so then you're going to crush it up and spread it out over a wide surface area. So yeah. over farmland, which I think is what we'll come back and talk about. Yeah. I've seen some companies talking about doing this on the beaches, right? We'll spread it out yeah. on the beach and then we'll let the ocean, you know, wash it into the ocean eventually from the waves. Uh, people talk about doing it in the deserts, right? In the Middle East or other places where you have large land area, but you need some, you need a lot of surface area is the, is the real challenge, need, right? Okay, yes. And so there's field weathering, which is like largely what you just described, Jesse, like grind up the rocks, spread them on fields. Um, the There are two other pathways that I don't want to, I don't think we should get super into, but I do want to mention. One is at source mineralization where you're like churning it and or treating mine tailings to increase their weathering rates. And then in, th in that case, the CO2 is stored mostly as solid carbonate in place. And the third is wastewater weathering, where you like mix rock into existing wastewater processing stream streams, which accelerates weathering because the wastewater often has high CO2 concentrations. Um, and mm. there it's mostly bicarbonate that then gets released with the wastewater and carried into the ocean. So we can talk mostly about field weathering, but I think like there's just so many potential pathways here that are not being investigated in the way they should be, I think. Uh, say, I, I do want to say one thing, which is I think the reason we're talking about rock weathering is because Frontier recently made yes. this large commitment, I think a $57 million commitment, is that right? That's to, right. To yep. um, Lithos, which is a company that actually does rock weathering. So yes. can you tell us just why Frontier made that commitment and also even what Lithos does? Like what? That's a lot of money. It's a so lot of what money. Happened. Yeah. Is that larger than any other frontier equipment so far? It is so far. Yep. 
I think one of the reasons that we're so excited about lithos is because of the science around the way that they measure the carbon removal that's happening. So we can talk about how carbon, different carbon removal pathways or technologies have different advantages and disadvantages. One thing that's nice about direct air capture is at least in theory, it feels pretty clean to measure, right? Like you got a flow meter, you inject some stuff underground, you know how much you injected. And for these more open systems pathways, including enhanced rock weathering, you grind up a bunch of rock, you spread it on a field. You have to figure out how much weathering happens in that field. And then ideally trace that bicarbonate as it runs through rivers and into the ocean, right? And so measuring and verifying with precision, the quantity of carbon removal that happens in these open systems pathways is a challenge um, and it's expensive. And Lithos has a really interesting approach to MRV that re that relies super heavily on like redundant measurement in fields. And I won't get into the super weeds on the way that they they basically measure cations as a proxy for weathering in the in the field, um, and they have a really strong commitment to making their data publicly available. So we think not only is this a catalytic purchase for Lithos as a company, but very importantly, we think it's really good for moving the science forward in the field and building trust in MRV in the field, given the tools they're using are um, quite rigorous and they have this commitment to data transparency. And can you just briefly give us a description of what, lith like, what does Lithos do? Yeah. So Lithos um, uses basalt, which is Jesse mentioned is one of the silicate rocks. They use um, waste basalt. So there are actually like a lot of quarries in, in the US and elsewhere. Like basalt is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. <laughs> I've gone to see some of these quarries, which is really cool and fun. And people should go look at rock piles. They're very cool. Um, and in Lithos's case, they use waste basalt. So we're not mining for new rocks. Like these are existing quarries with a, they don't, with a, and most of these quarries, they have these piles of fines. Um, I shouldn't say most of these quarries, but some of these quarries have these piles of fines that don't have an obvious market today. And so um, Lithos is using these very, very fine piles of rocks. Um, they are transporting that rock to agricultural fields. They are spreading that rock on the fields. Um, and then they are measuring the the um, amount of rock weathering and CO2 uptake that happens in the field, and then tracing that bicarbonate through rivers to the ocean to account for any losses. Now, one thing I think is really important to note here that I did not realize is that, you know, grinding up rock and spreading on fields can either sound benign or really scary, depending on where you're coming from here. The thing is, we do a lot of grinding up of rocks and spreading it on fields. So in the U.S. alone, there are 15 million tons of limestone, sometimes known as ag lime or agricultural lime, applied to soils, not for any carbon benefit, but to help manage soil pH. So soil pH is really important for a number of things, including pr crop productivity. And um, silicate materials, basalts, olivine, other things can provide the same pH regulation as lime and leverage existing supply chains for, for lime transport and application, but have this carbon removal benefit. Um, so that was like a, when I had that realization, it made me feel more enthusiastic about the pathway because it's basically leveraging existing industrial infrastructure and supply chains. Um, and farmers are already quite 
quite excited about this. And in fact, huge swaths of the United States are underliming relative to what USDA recommends they do. To, in other words, the pH, they're, they're, <laughs> the, soil, the soil is more is too acidic. And I've been talked with several farmers who are quite keen to do more liming. They're limited by the cost of lime because lime, unlike basalt, is not ubiquitous and can be expensive. So this is so like there's... something farmers are already doing. Oh, yeah. And if they were to do it with basalt instead of limestone, then it would have these big climate. Yes. So like in some ways, this whole thing is like getting farmers to use one rock instead of a different kind of, like use basalt instead of limestone when they do this. And obviously then there's making sure it's actually pulling carbon out of the air. Like, yeah. Of this. But like details. And like, and then, you know, you have to deal with the whole counterfactuals because it's not like liming has no climate benefit. And so like, if you're, you know, you got to compare, compare these things. Um, but yeah. And there's new science out on this um, yeah. just just today, I guess, or this this week. Yeah, today. Uh, there's a new paper in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences, or PNAS, um, on the impact of enhanced weathering in uh, some large field trials that took place in the U.S. Corn Belt, uh, so in the Midwest, where there's a huge, you know, huge areas of land devoted to growing corn and and soy, usually in ro- rotation, you know, back and forth from year to year. Um, and so this is a four-year-long field trial where they were um, at multiple sites and multiple scales doing exactly what Lithos is talking about, right? Um, yeah. Crushing up basalt, spreading it out in these fields, and then closely monitoring the impact to measure how much carbon was removed by looking at sort of the chemical processes going on in the soil um, from which you can infer how much CO2 has been taken up by the rocks. Um, and importantly, measuring the impacts on soil fertility, the crop yield, the nutrition content of the crops as well. And this is the part that started to get me really excited. Yeah. Um, not only is it very clear that it's removing CO2 from the atmosphere, the estimate is about 10.5 tons of CO2 per hectare over a four-year period, so 2.6 tons per hectare. The important part is we have 70 million hectares in the United States devoted to growing corn. And so you scale that up, you know, 10.5 divided by 4, uh, you have 2.6, and then multiply that by 70 million. This is like 180 million tons a year of carbon yeah. removal. Like we um, think, I mean, there have been studies that suggest that there's one to four gigatons of annual enhanced rock weathering potential from existing waste finds alone. Like, it is, a, this is a very high, potential high capacity CDR pathway. <laughs> Yeah, just from the the agricultural lands alone, this could be in the U.S. And this is just the Corn Belt. There's lots of other areas you could do this. I mean, that seems like it's on the order of like three to five percent of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. One of the reasons I, I was excited, I'm starting to get myself rock pilled. Um, <laughs> reading this is that it showed that the impact on the nutrition content of the corn and soy was an improvement. It helps the plants take up um, potassium and other nutrients from the soil more effectively. And because of that, it also increases the yields from the land. So they found that the corn crop uh, yields went up by 12% and the soybean yields by 16%. Those are pretty big yield increases. So if I'm a farmer, what you're basically telling me is I can do something that improves the health of my soil makes my corn and soy crops more productive, makes them more nutritious, and also you're going to pay me because I'm helping you remove CO2 from the atmosphere. That sounds like a a pretty good deal compared to some of the other challenges of getting um, other carbon dioxide removal options uh, scaled up and, and finding the infrastructure and the, you know, the willingness to cite the, the infrastructure and, and all that that you need to, to get to scale. So this, this sounds pretty promising, like a kind of a win-win-win. 
you know, the other thing I'll say is like, again, back to the portfolio approach, different different approaches are going to have different advantages and disadvantages. In the enhanced rock weathering pathway, unlike DAC, it's mostly OPEX and not so much CAPEX. So mm. like, cool, that's Meaning cool. Meaning you're paying, you're paying every year to, to grind up the rocks and deliver it and, and spread it out on the land, but rather than having to build a big expensive piece of kit that, that is all totally, upfront cost. Totally, totally. And your, your fuel cost, so to speak, like the thing you're buying is like basically free because these basalt... Like at least for your first. At least at year. first. Yeah. At least at first, there's just a lot of waste basalt sitting around, right? Anytime you're putting anything on a field, people are going to be concerned about what it is, what we know about it, what what the feedstock contains, what the impacts could be. So far, I think we're very confident that this is almost entirely upside, but um, we require like third party measurement of um, metals and the you know full analysis, including metals in the feedstock. We require ongoing soil monitoring to measure nutrient and metal content in soils to make sure there's no nickel issues. Like we have the ability in our contract to make sure that all of this stuff is addressed, um, which I think is really important, shows the power of offtakes, shows the importance of responsibility in early offtakes for setting a high bar, because in a way, the low barriers, the relatively low barriers to entry for taking piles of rock and dumping them on fields could be good for optimizing for climate. But it also could result in like lowering the quality bar. Yeah, <laughs> and indeed. we really want to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, and so we're spending a lot, lot of time on that. Just to pick up on one of the things you said there, which is the worry about nickel or other minerals being absorbed. Um, that, that seems to be one of the key concerns here is that if we're sort of changing the chemical, you know, chemistry and, and chemical processes by which these plants grow, they may uptake um, yeah. other uh, metals other than the kind of nutrients that we like, like potassium, manganese, you know, phosphorus, the kinds of things we do want in our food. Uh, but it could be things like nickel or other heavy metals. I think the study out in, in PNAS, they measured exactly for that and found no in significant increase in the content of trace metals in the crop. So that was a yeah. least encouraging result from this particular trial. But what you're saying is like, if we're going to do this across very wide areas, different geology, you know, different geographies, different uh, weather patterns, different soils, uh, we're going to need to be vigilant about that. And that's one of the things that off-takers have the potential to shape by making sure that we're, we're measuring the right things and ensuring that these processes are safe. No, no um, it also seems like one thing that is really interesting about field weathering, especially, or really any of the enhanced rock weathering, is you get these thermodynamic benefits. Um, one thing we talk a lot about in when we talk about direct air capture is like, you really do need, and I know there are alternatives to this. I know biomass, you know, using plants or another kind of natural life-based process um, <laughs> could be a way out of this. But generally, when we talk about direct air capture, we're talking about industrial facilities. And like, generally, if you have a industrial process that is going to touch CO2, capture the carbon and remove it, put it back into the ground, like you need to have some kind of Thing that brings in the air <laughs> that brings you need some kind of machinery or some kind of energy intensive process that brings the air into the facility and exposes it to the co2 what is so nice and what is so interesting about the um about enhanced rock weathering is it seems like this is a largely passive process after you do the spreading and so if you spread things out in a field. And so therefore you like get a lot of thermodynamic benefits. You don't, you know, what Vaclav Smil, I think talks, um, the energy scholar, Bill Gates, his favorite author. That's like the, you know, the, the word that will appear on, appear in his obituary. Uh, Vaclav Smil talks about how like 
to do direct air capture at any kind of scale, you have to run the full energy system in reverse. And that is not the case with enhanced rock weathering necessarily, because all of this would happen. A, a ton of the actual capturing process would happen passively. Yeah, it's it's actually the the getting the CO two out of the chemical substances you yeah. use for um, direct air capture that takes most of the energy and is the step that's avoided here. In direct air capture, you're using fans and other things to blow a lot of air over your static, uh, mm-hmm. you know, chemical medium that's absorbing the CO two, and then you got to get that CO two back out of your sorbent so you can use it again, and that takes a lot of energy to to heat it up and, and pull it out, and then you have to se- you know sequester that CO two. Here we're basically bringing the chemical process out to the air, <laughs> right? So we're grinding up the rocks and we're distributing it, and that does take a significant amount of energy. I think one of the studies um, we're looking at in, in preparation for this found that it could consume, depending on the emissions intensity of the electricity mix that's used to kind of run the grinding and things like that, this could take back maybe ten or fifteen percent of the net removal, um, so or the gross removal of CO2 from the atmosphere. But that's much better than it could potentially be for direct air capture, which consumes far more. So for any scale of carbon removal, enhanced weathering uses a lot less input energy, mostly because it uses the ocean and the rocks to sort of store the CO2 rather than having to pull the CO2 out of the sorbents and then inject it underground for geologic storage, which takes a ton of energy. The, the other thing that I think is important here, and Jesse, you mentioned this potential, the, the crop yields benefits we're seeing and ag lime replacement potential. And I think we talk a lot about diversifying the portfolio on the supply side, but given that we know that we need policy to drive the development of this field at scale, you have to think about how to diversify on the demand side too. And so like, For DAC, we've mostly thought about just like paying for the CO2 benefit of the thing, right? That doesn't have to be true for every carbon removal pathway. Like there may, in fact, be carbon removal pathways that have quite significant co-benefits that change the political economy of the policy that you're trying to enact to drive demand for these pathways. And that's actually totally healthy and fine. Yeah. Just to put a fine point on that, like you could envision a world where a future farm bill includes some, you know, modest incentives to encourage farmers to switch from using lime to using basalt. And that would be a significant market, right? You said about 15 million tons a year of, of, you know, of lime uh, used in agricultural lands. So like until we get to an even larger scale, you know, gigaton type scale, that could be a way to scale up this enhanced rock weathering where you don't really have the significant costs or you're not just paying for it solely for the CO2 removal. I want to press harder on this because I feel like this is kind of actually the, the heart of what makes enhanced rock weathering so cr- interesting and so <laughs> crucial, which is like when we talk about direct air capture and we talk about these big industrial facilities that are presumably going to do direct air capture, like the only customer that we can envision It's a waste management type function. It's a public function. It's something that's done by the government. And when we imagine a buyer here, the buyer we usually imagine when we talk about direct air capture is the government. What's interesting about this is that we can actually imagine a buyer who is not the federal government. Is that right? I'm not, it's not even so much that the, I mean, I think yes, potentially, but also that the government might value this thing above and beyond its pure global CO2 benefit, right? So like it may be, for example, that a government wants to decrease our reliance on foreign fertilizers and that in fact, using basalt in place of ag lime can have a fertilizing effect that could help achieve that public goal. And and I also think like you could imagine, we talk a lot about offsetting, right? Like, Like the use of carbon removal is for 
a company that has an emission that it can't reduce to like go on the market and buy a carbon removal credit or a carbon removal unit to offset that continued emission. But Think about enhanced field weathering, enhanced rock weathering. Like if you're a large agricultural company and you are a part of the carbon problem, you can think about functionally insetting, like like actually reducing your carbon footprint by, you know, getting excited about, about enhanced rock weathering. Whether you're a commercial business looking to reduce energy costs or a large-scale utility provider exploring DC block solutions to augment grid stability and security, the innovations and team at Core Power can truly unlock the potential of your energy strategy. Offering a unique, vertically integrated structure that aligns supply chain, manufacturing, installation, and asset management, Core Power ensures unmatched end-to-end control throughout your project, from design to deployment. With active production in Vermont and Coreplex, the manufacturing gigafactory coming online in 2025 in Arizona, Core Power actively drives the domestic energy transition through direct access to superior tech, clean energy manufacturing, and unmatched support for clean energy jobs and resilient, sustainable communities. Visit corepower.com, that's K-O-R-E power.com, to explore Core Power and discover how we can reach your clean energy goals together. Core Power, the future of clean energy is here. So, uh, Jane, before we wrap up here, let's let's jump in our time machine and uh, let's jump to maybe 2050, oh and let's talk about what this would look like at scale. Because we talked about you know some of the ways you could maybe get started doing enhanced weathering, you know, working with farmers and replacing existing practices. But some of the potential estimates that I'm reading about here are on the gigaton scale, like maybe two gigatons of carbon removal a year. Uh, globally, which is I think like that's like five percent of global emissions, if I'm not mistaken. Um, these, these are big numbers, right? And that's going to require presumably billions of tons of rock spread over huge, huge areas in multiple countries. So maybe we'll just stick with the U.S. as a big country with lots of agricultural land. But like, if we're in that future and we're doing enhanced rock weathering to pull a couple hundred million tons of CO two uh, out of the atmosphere, what all is entailed in that? Like, what you know, where's the energy consumption? Are we using lots of water? Um, is that compatible with some of our other priorities for sustainability? What yeah. might that system look like? Yeah. I mean, I am rock-pilled and of team. There is no free lunch in any of this. So just to say, like, (laughs) my rosiest vision of the world in 2050 requires a lot of, like, agential work. It's not just going to magically result by, like, the mere existence of this technology. But a couple of things. One thing that makes me optimistic about this question, Jesse, is, like, we already move a lot of rock. Like, when you talk about the scale of the carbon removal problem, and Rob, this goes to your, like, Vaclav example, the response from skeptics is often, like we have no industries capable of like doing anything at the scale, but we do. And in fact, this is like the same industry. I mean, there are few in- industries in the world that move things at billions of tons scale, yeah. right? There's basically the oil and gas industry, right? The one we're yeah. trying to phase down. And that's been Vaclav Smil's point often as he compares the scale of direct air capture, even carbon dioxide, I see carbon capture, you know, and the amount of CO2 you'd have to move around at if you're trying to do this at gigaton scale to like the entire size of the current oil industry, which, which of course is a incredibly profitable product. Now we're talking about doing that just for like waste removal. That does seem kind of crazy on some level. Um, 
we can come back to that in another episode. But <laughs> uh, but the other industry that moves things around at the scale is cement, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we gravel. Build, you know, huge amounts of gravel and cement and 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 concrete. We know how to move rocks. We yep. like we move rocks. We move a lot of rocks, and so <laughs> so. Um, yeah, so that's one of the reasons that I'm that I am optimistic yeah. and and hopeful about this. Um, I also think, by the way, like a set of policies that doesn't get talked about that could be a big driver of all of this stuff is is the intersection of climate and trade. Like we we move a lot of rocks, we move a lot of things, a lot of these things globally, and I think mm. um, to the extent that countries start pushing each other to embed climate considerations in their trade regimes, um, it will encourage more industrials to look at their supply chains in ways that could be very helpful here. And that is like, when you talk about carbon removal, the solution set's too narrowly focused on only DAC. When you talk about carbon removal policies, the solutions are often too narrowly focused on like some imagined compliance market or a procurement program. And there's actually like a much wider range of tools that we need to bring to bear on this problem. One of the studies here talked about if we're at this sort of multi-ton, you know, two gigaton scale, it may be using something like a, you know, a couple percent of all national energy consumption today in some of these countries. So it's not a small number. And I think it's also like, look, you evaluate how much energy use would go to CDR. And these things are inherently somewhat subjective and value-based, but like society may, may, and in fact, probably already does value some amount of carbon removal. And so like, then you have to have a question about like how much and what's appropriate and how to balance different things that society values. And the point is that that's like a value-based, that's a value-based question. But Just we, it's too, it is too early to know what will work, what will not work, and at what scales, not just as a technological matter, but as a social and political matter. And like, yeah. we just have to take a wider view. Jane, uh, Jane loves all of her carbon dioxide removal children <laughs> equally. I do. Uh, I love them all equally. <laughs> Perfect. So, well, I think we're ready to move to upshift downshift. Um, yeah, I think so. But uh, let's do upshift downshift right after this. This episode of Shift Key is brought to you by Advanced Energy United. Clean energy is ready now, but our laws are not. Advanced Energy United is changing that. Outdated rules and regulations are preventing companies from providing the clean energy solutions consumers want. Advanced Energy United is on a mission to achieve 100% clean energy in America. They're working to reduce policy roadblocks in states across the country and on Capitol Hill. Now, Advanced Energy United represents the businesses creating and providing all forms of clean, efficient, and reliable energy and transportation solutions. And by working to knock down the biggest policy barriers facing those solutions, Advanced Energy United and its members are creating better opportunities for all. Learn more at advancedenergyunited.org slash heatmap. That is advancedenergyunited.org slash heatmap. Now back to the show. So Jane, you, you're you're a, a regular listener uh, to Shift Key, so you know that uh, each episode we try to share something that's uh, <laughs> getting us excited about the energy transition and something that's maybe getting us a little bit down or upshift in our downshift. So Rob, what what is your uh, what let's, is your downshift for the week? What's my downshift for the week? My downshift for the week uh, was that yesterday during its in- earnings call with investors, uh, where it went over last year's kind of full results, Rivian, the electric. Mm-hmm. SUV and truck company announced that it would be laying off 10% of its salaried employees. Um, Like the call was not entirely bad news. 
Um, so part of what they talked about on the call is basically like Rivian sees a bridge to profitability by the end of the year. They are expecting that in Q4 of this year, they will attain a very small amount of profitability. That's a big deal. Yeah. It is a big deal. I think what the call mostly served, but and, and of course, laying off 10% of their employees is going to reduce their costs, which is going to serve that plan. It's never good when a company lays people off, and that's why it's my downshift. I think the main thing that this call kind of brought home to me was number one, um, this is Rivian's make or break year. You know, EV companies have to cross this like valley of death where they start out, they have very high costs. Um, they have a lot of investment. Eventually, if you're a successful EV company, um, you get to a place where you have enough revenue, you can kind of make up for your high operating expenses. But in the meantime, in the, in the middle, as they're scaling up their production, as they're finding customers, there's this period of time where their operating expenses are growing or high and where they don't have the revenue to um, equalize with that, to, to make up for those operating expenses. And especially where they're like Rivian kind of reaching the end of the life of their cash on hand. Um, um, and number two, Rivian, you know, interesting company. It's one of, it's probably the most successful EV only American based company that isn't Tesla. And so would be great to have them as, as part of a diversified set of, of car companies. And uh, this is going to be a big year for them. And, and it started off with them laying 10, laying off 10% of salaried employees. It's never something you want to see. So I'm going to uh, go <laughs> go to the climate science uh, to one of the really scary scenarios that I think has come up a lot in, in from time to time in discussions of uh, climatic tipping points. And that is the slowdown of the Atlantic Meridional uh, overturning oh cir circulation. I'm going to call it the AMOC because I never want to say Meridional <laughs> again. Um, <laughs> this is uh, what folks usually think of as the Gulf Stream. So this is a big conveyor belt in the ocean that circulates heat and salinity and other things around in the Atlantic, um, bringing warmer uh, waters up from uh, from the equatorial regions, up the, from the Gulf of Mexico, uh, up along the shores of the United States and into northern Europe. Uh, it plays a really important local role in in the climate uh, that we're used to in, in North America and in, in northern Europe. And there's been a concern for a long time that as the ice sheets in Greenland melt and dump more fresh water into the ocean at the sort of top of this uh, conveyor belt, that it might slow it down or even stop it. And that would have a big impacts on the temperatures that we experience and maybe have a very significant cooling effect on Northern Europe. Um, there is a paper out in Science Advances um, a couple of weeks ago, physics-based early warning signals shows that the AMOC is on a tipping course, which is not a headline I wanted to read. Um, and I dove into the paper and what it's doing is actually something very interesting, which is we've seen this sort of dynamic in some of the Earth climate system models, um, but not all of them. And it was unclear, it seemed, whether or not this was an artifact of the way the model simplifies the global climate system or whether it's something that could really happen. And so what they did was build a sort of physics-based, more detailed model of this dynamic. And we're looking for observable early warning signals that mapped onto this physical model that could be used as a sign, like something we can look at in the real world, not in a model, as a sign that maybe this is, we're moving in a direction where the AMOC would slow down. And unfortunately, what they find um, 
is that turns out to be the case in, in their study, at least. And so the results here give a clear answer to a longstanding problem around in the climate research community concerning the existence of AMOC tipping behavior in global climate models. Yes, it does indeed occur in these models. This is bad news for the climate system and humanity, as up until now, one would think that the AMOC tipping was only a theoretical concept and tipping would disappear as soon as the full climate system with all of its additional feedbacks was considered. So once we get our models to be more detailed. On the other hand, we have paleoclimate evidence of this, and they find uh, that this physics-based observable early warning signal finds that we are on course and that indicates that we're seeing some of the early indicators that indicate that a slowdown in the AMOC may be happening and a tipping point may be near. Now, how near is very unclear. So something that I hope that climate scientists are going to dig, dig into quite a lot more. I don't want to scare anybody to think that we're about to go through a global winter in, you know, in, in, uh, in Northern Europe or something like that. Um, but this is one of those big global systems that we've been having a, you know, a, a close eye on, one of the sort of positive feedback loops, or I'd say negative feedback loops that the climate system has been very concerned about and not a positive headline in that direction. <laughs> I really thought this was something that I was allowed to chill out about. So Me too. And that's like, why I was worried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's, your, what's your upshift? So my upshift is a bit more positive. Um, this is news from my friends at Fervo Energy earlier in the week. Um, Fervo is a pioneer in what's known as enhanced geothermal energy systems. We'll probably have to do an episode devoted to this, I think, in the future. Um, but this is a, a way Can to- Can I just say, rocks. Yes, back to rocks. I, I was going <laughs> to point that out as well. Um, yes, rocks rock. Really, um, the whole climate problem is just rocks at different scales. <laughs> exactly. So Fervo Energy is a leader in the field of enhanced geothermal energy. This is an effort to basically harness the innovations that have come out of the shale gas and oil industries for, you know, directed drilling and um, using hydraulic stimulation to create fractures in in rock structures that would allow us to tap into geothermal energy potential in a much broader area of the country. And my group at, uh, at Princeton Zero Lab has been collaborating with Fervo Energy for several years now to model out the potential of this technology if they're able to commercialize it at a and bring the cost down to a level, um, you know, a, a lower level. This is a technology that could be on the hundreds of gigawatt scale. So that's like, you know, larger than our current nuclear industry. So this is kind of a big deal. It would be a new big quiver arrow in our, it would be a new big arrow in our quiver to confront climate change and produce reliable, clean electricity. But that's all been premised on the idea that we can get the cost down and that we can demonstrate that um, the reservoirs they create can circulate water you know, fast enough to extract heat from the ground and use it as a power source. And so what Fervo announced earlier this week was that they have done a, a first of a kind kind of demonstration project, uh, but now they've moved on to a second project in Utah. Um, and what they're finding is that they are on a very steep learning curve in terms mm. of the reductions in cost for drilling and in the speed up in the amount of time it takes them to drill. And so what they found was that it took them about 71 days to drill one of their wells at their first site in Nevada back in 2022. And by uh, the end of the last year in Utah, they got that drilling speed down um, to 21 days. So 70% reduction wow. in the amount of time. And that basically means the cost is scaling on a similar time frame. So they've cut the costs of, of their wells basically in half already just from these demonstration projects. And that's what we expected. That's I, I had a senior thesis student my first uh, semester here at, at or first year here at Princeton looking into these sorts of learning curve dynamics. But we have seen this in the shale gas industry where we've seen tremendous productivity improvements in, in the cost of drilling and in the amount of gas that they can extract um, over time as, as drillers get better and better uh, at what they're doing. And, you know, the sort of the whole premise of Fervo is that we could 
see that same kind of learning curve and that same kind of improvement in the geothermal field in a way that we've never had before. And it looks like they're on that track. So, you know, these are really encouraging early findings. Rob, what is your upshift for the day? Uh, my upshift is a story by my colleague, Emily Panacorvo, which is about how much reconductoring and grid enhancing technologies, other grid enhancing technologies could help solve our transmission problem. So as the repeat project here at Princeton, associated with our very own Jesse Jenkins, has, has found in order to kind of fully realize the decarbonization potential of the Inflation Reduction Act, we need to double the rate of transmission that we're building in this country. And as many listeners will know, it's extremely hard to build transmission in this country, unlike building natural gas pipelines or other kinds of fossil fuel pipelines, which have an ex expedited process. Building transmission requires going through every level of government along the route that you build a, a, a new power line. So you have to go through counties, you have to go through states, you have to go through the federal government. You have to. It's just a much more work-intensive process, and there are many more veto points, so it's much harder. Um, and so if we have to double the rate of building transmission and we're not going to get help from Congress to make that easier, there's not going to be new legislative policy to make that easier, um, then that uh, is going to be really, really hard. So what does that mean? Well, Emily, my colleague, wrote about how by simply taking the lines we have and rewiring them with better conductors, with replacing the steel of a literal power line, the steel core of a power line um, with a with a new composite material, we can just move more electrons through the lines that we have and that this could be a much cheaper way to meet our goals. I think the other interesting thing that Emily looked at were what's called grid enhancing technologies, kind of technologies that let utilities send more power through certain power lines when conditions are safe. What was the biggest news here to me and the most interesting thing was that here in PJM, here in the kind of grid that covers Washington, D.C., all the way down to kind of central Virginia and all the way up to North Jersey and through Pennsylvania and also Chicago, um, that just using these grid enhancing technologies, we could add six gigawatts of new wind, solar and storage in three years that um, I we love ways to improve the grid without having to build new physical transmission lines. There's also a regulatory component to this too, because there's yeah. not a huge incentive for many utilities to go and do this. And so it's one of the things that regulators have to lean in on and make sure is, is part of everybody's plan. Thank you Thanks, so much Rob. for joining us, Dr. Jane, yeah. Dr. Yeah. Jane the Rock Flagle. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. This episode of ShiftKey was brought to you by the Financing and Deploying Clean Energy Certificate Program at Yale University. Want to transform our planet's energy landscape? Then dive into this dynamic online program designed for busy professionals and unleash your potential to spearhead a clean and equitable energy revolution. Apply by March 10th to connect with Yale expertise right from your laptop. Grow your network and propel your career while deepening your impact. To learn more, search online for Yale Clean Energy Certificate. It's really that easy. Just search online. There's only one Yale. You're not going to miss it for Yale Clean Energy Certificate. Shift Key is a production of Heatmap News. The podcast was edited by Jillian Goodman. Our editor-in-chief is Nika Loricella. Multimedia editing and audio engineering by Jacob Lambert and Nick Woodbury. Our music is by Adam Cromelo. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.